Luke 9, 28 to 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face became altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared with him in glory. And they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts. Let's please be seated and let's pray. Let's pray together. glorious and triune God. We praise you for your eternal glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally sharing all of the attributes of deity. And Lord Jesus, we marvel that in fulfillment of the covenant of redemption that you would take on human flesh and come and dwell amongst a sinful people. Lord Jesus, that your glory would be veiled as you walked through this sinful world. Lord, we marvel in, in the fact that, that all through the incarnation, you possessed as you possess for all eternity all of the attributes of deity. Yet, Lord, those attributes were largely veiled as you walked through this world. Lord, we praise you that here on the Mount of Transfiguration, we get a glimpse of your glory. As your glory was revealed to Peter and John and James, and as it has been revealed to us through your word, I pray that you would help us to glimpse through the power of your spirit the greatness of your glory, Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would be enraptured, consumed, filled with zeal, and delight in your glory as a foretaste of the glory that we will experience for all of eternity in your glorious presence. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work in our hearts this morning, that you would, would bring these words to bear and cause us, Lord, to respond in faith and worship and love and obedience, that the glory of Christ may redound in us 
pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2001, mountain climber Eric Weinmayer did something that very few had ever done. He reached the summit of Mount Everest, which at 8,848 meters is the tallest mountain in the world. And while it's a remarkable feat of human determination for anyone to reach the summit of that mountain, Weinmayer had another major obstacle to overcome. He's blind. Weinmayer is the first blind man to climb Mount Everest. Many people, even people who were sighted and, and not disabled in this way, have died trying to get there. Many more have turned back, and only precious few have made it all the way. Weinmayer, as he climbed that mountain was completely dependent on his friends to guide him to the summit. Well, this week we are ascending a mountain that is even higher than Everest. I'm referring, of course, to the Mount of Transfiguration, which, although it is physically lower than Everest, is spiritually higher, infinitely higher than any other mountain, for it is on this mountain that the glory of Christ is revealed. Weinmayer was dependent on his friends to guide him towards the summit, and so are we. We are guided by Luke the Evangelist, and Peter, and John, and James, who are themselves guided by the Holy Spirit to remember and to record all that transpired on that day. Brothers and sisters, we too are guided by the Holy Spirit, by that same Holy Spirit. And as I've been thinking about preaching this passage, I've been reminded consistently about my, my inability to communicate the glory of Christ. It's the same inability that, that I experience every week, but I praise God for his work in my heart and in yours to communicate these things to a way in which we will, in which we will understand. And we will appreciate with eyes that have been enlightened by the Holy Spirit. So I am keenly aware of my inability, but I'm also keenly aware and confident of the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to see Christ in his glory. And that's true in this passage, and it's true every time we open the word of God. Last week, as we began to ascend the mountain, as in response to Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? We heard Peter's declaration, the Christ of God. Now this is astounding. Peter recognized that Jesus is the anointed one. He is the coming one, promised and prophesied in the Old Testament as the chief prophet, as the high priest, and as the eternal king. And this week, as we reach the summit, as the glory of Christ is revealed it is declared by God himself. 
as God testifies to who Jesus is. And as J.C. Rowell says, this passage lifts a corner of the veil which hangs over the world to come and throws light on some of the deepest truths of our religion. As Peter's testimony, Jesus, sorry, Peter's testimony, Jesus responded by declaring that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. Luke 9.32. Remember, this is the, was the first time that the disciples had heard that Jesus was going to suffer and die. And I asked you last week to consider for a moment what it must have been like for those disciples to hear that news for the first time. They had only just discovered who Jesus is, and now immediately after that, they discover that he is going to die. But Jesus continues to explain that he is not the only one who's going to suffer. That they also would suffer. And many of them would die as well. Jesus explained that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Verse 23. And Jesus went on to declare that he would be glorified and so would his followers be glorified as they followed in his footsteps. When our passage this morning Peter and John and James are going to get a glimpse of what that glory is going to look like. Well, in this passage, there are three key scenes. First of all, in verses 20 to 29, we see the Son's glory. And then in verses 30 to 33, we see the saints' witness. And then in verses 34 to 36, we see the Father's testimony. So the Son's glory, the saints' witness, and the Father's testimony. The transfiguration provides a visible and inaudible revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ. It reveals the glory of Christ visually through the unveiling of his appearance and audibly through the very testimony of God. The parallels to this passage are found in Matthew 17 verses 1 to 9 and, and Mark 9 verses 2 to 10. And especially in, in the first uh, point of this, of this sermon, I'm going to be quoting extensively from the Puritan John Owen from his book, The Glory of Christ, because I know no other author who does as good a job of proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. Next to, of course, the inspired writers of Holy Scripture. So John Owen is another friend who will guide us toward the summit. So in verses 28 and 29, we see the sun's glory. The sun's glory. It's now been about eight days, or specifically six days, according to Matthew and Mark, after Peter's testimony that Jesus is the Christ. And after Jesus explained that he was going to suffer and die and be raised, and after he had called them to follow him on the same path. So exactly, exactly six days later. And Luke here, in mentioning what has just been said, is drawing a direct connection with the previous passage. 
These passages are intimately connected. It's tied to what Jesus has just said. Peter and James and John are with Jesus. These three, remember, had also been with Jesus when he raised Jairus' daughter in chapter 8. And they'll be with him again in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter and John and James are Jesus' inner circle. These are the ones that, that we had just heard about in verse 27, who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And that promise is about to be fulfilled. These men are about to see the kingdom of God. So Jesus takes them up the mountain. Now there's a widely accepted tradition that the location is Mount Tabor, which is a, a, a low mountain in the Jezreel Valley, or the Valley of Megiddo, which you're probably aware of. But it's unlikely that it's Mount Tabor because during the time of Jesus' ministry, there was actually a Roman garrison on that small mountain. And so it would have been not the kind of place that, that something of this magnitude would have happened without there being a whole lot of Roman witnesses and hostility to what was taking place. More likely, the location is Mount Hermon, which, remember, from Peter's confession last week took place at Caesarea Philippi, at the base of Mount Hermon, which at 2,814 meters is, it, it dominates, Mount Hermon dominates the landscape. Now it's impossible to know for certain where this took place, but the important point here is that, that Jesus took these three men and ascended the mountain. Jesus had a summit to attend on the summit. So like the previous passage, this one also begins with prayer. As I said last week, when you read in the scriptures that Jesus withdrew to, withdraws to pray, you know that something extra special is about to take place. And so just as the Holy Spirit came down in the form of a dove and the Father testified to who Jesus is as Jesus prayed at his baptism, so this prayer also leads directly to the revelation of who Jesus is. The revelation of the glory of Christ. And as Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothes became dazzling white. Verse 29. This phrase that's translated dazzlingly white is also used in scriptures to describe the flashing of lightning. Mark says that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, so that no one on, or so as no one on earth could bleach them. Matthew says that his face shone like the sun. The veil lifted to reveal the glory of Christ. Peter and John and James are seeing for the first time who Jesus really is. Peter declares in 2 Peter 1.16, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. They were eyewitnesses of his majesty. They, they are seeing something of the glory of Christ that will also be revealed to every eye at his return. Remember, Jesus had just declared that for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him that will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now, in this moment, his glory is being revealed. And this moment will be a massive encouragement 
to these men for the rest of their lives. They will never forget this moment as long as they live. It will help to just spur them on to walk faithfully in anticipation of that moment, in anticipation of his return. I often think of the moment when I will first see Christ in his glory. I long for that moment. I'll never want that moment to end. And it won't. It will last for all eternity. But to my shame, even as a Christian, and as a, as a younger Christian, I, I used to be concerned that, that heaven would be boring, that it would just be about, about sitting on a cloud, strumming a harp, and, 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 and singing hymns all day. Now, as I understand a little bit more, even that itself would be glorious. But it really reveals just how misinformed and fleshly my thinking was. It reveals that, that I was not consumed with the glory of Christ. That, that my heart wasn't, wasn't focused on worshiping him as I should. Have you ever seen a, a beautiful sunset that, that you, just, you just never wanted it to end? I know that many, many times when I, when I lived in Australia, there would be these gorgeous sunsets that, that I, would just, I would just stand there and say nothing and, and look at them. But invariably, these sunsets would always fade into darkness. Married couples, maybe you can remember staring into each other's eyes on your wedding night. Now, I hope you still relish time staring into each other's eyes. But one day, those eyes, or your eyes, will close, will close in death. Those eyes will close in this life, and you will say goodbye. But the glory of Christ is immeasurably greater than any sunset and immeasurably greater than your beloved's eyes. He's the one who created that sunset and those eyes. And that moment when you first see the glorified Christ will never end. That moment will last for all eternity. As with glorified eyes, you witness the glorified Christ. Hear from John Owen. He says, Make up your mind that to behold the glory of God by beholding the glory of Christ is the greatest privilege which is given to believers in this life. This is the dawning of heaven. It is the first taste of that heavenly glory which God has prepared for us. For this is eternal life, to know the Father and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent, John 17, 3. So fix your mind on Christ and on his glory. Consider who he is. Consider his person and his work, his life, his death, his resurrection. Fill your mind with Christ and his glory. 
meditate on passages like Hebrews 1 that Luke read for us earlier. Verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Meditate on him. Or Colossians 1, 15 to 20, just a, a couple of verses from this. He is the image of the invisible God. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Or Philippians 2, 6 to 10, again, a few verses. He was in the form of God, and being found in the form of God, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Make such passages your daily diet. Feed on these passages. Feast on these passages. Consider Christ and his humanity and his deity. Think about his humanity, that, that he is truly man, like us in every way, yet without sin. And consider his deity, that he is truly God and possesses all of the attributes of God. Question 7 of the, the Baptist Catechism. Again, my, my boys can sing this for you. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Meditate on these things. Meditate on the glory of Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, we are, are living in troubled times. And all Christians have always lived in troubled times and will continue to do so until the end of time when Christ returns. But there is great comfort in meditating on the glory of Christ. There's great comfort in, in focusing your mind on who Jesus is and what he came to do. Again from John Owen. By beholding the glory of Christ uh, by faith, we shall find rest to our souls. Our minds are apt to be filled with troubles, fears, cares, dangers, distresses, ungoverned passion and lusts. By these, our thoughts are filled with chaos, darkness, and confusion. But when the soul is fixed on the glory of Christ, then the mind finds rest and peace, for to be spiritually minded is peace. Romans 8, 6. Remember the context of our passage. Peter and John and James had just heard that Jesus is going to suffer and die, and that they are going to follow him on that path. And the incident before us was planned to be an encouragement for them. The, the vision of Christ's glory would be a, it would spur them on in whatever they faced. Now, brothers and sisters, you also must follow Jesus wherever he leads. And that path normally leads to suffering. So fill your mind with the glory of Christ. It will be an encouragement to you in whatever you face. When you 
behold the glory of Christ, you are also weaned from the world. Your tastes and your, your appetites are changed. You, you lose your desire for what the world has to offer. Again, a little story from Australia. When, when I was there for the, the first period of time, I would, would drink this stuff called international roast coffee. It was this brown powder. Now, Nescafe would be a major step up from international roast. It was, it was cheap and nasty. It was swill. But I didn't know it was swill. Until my teaching partner, Kylie, and I, I wrote to ask if, if I could, if I could talk, to her about the, uh, talk to you about, about her and this, and, and she, she had pity on me that I was drinking this stuff. And she would make me these coffees, she'd bring these coffees that, that were made with, with fresh beans and freshly brewed. And, and when I tasted that, it was just like, this is glorious. Again, in the, the much lower sense of the word. But as I got used to drinking these, these really good coffees, I had lost my taste completely for international roast. I'd rather drink water than international roast. Yet again from John Owen, on Christ's glory, I would fix all my thoughts and desires. And the more I see of the glory of Christ, the more the painted beauties of this world will wither in my eyes. And I will be more and more crucified to this world. It will become to me like something dead and putrid, impossible for me to enjoy. Friends, once you've gotten a taste of the glory of Christ, the swill that the world has to offer loses its appeal. But that's not all. When you behold the glory of Christ, you also can't help but tell others about Christ and his glory. You want to spread the knowledge of the glory of Christ. You don't want to see people living like rats in a garbage dump, feasting on filth, when they could be dining at Christ's sumptuous table. Allow me one final quote from John Owen. He asks, Do we fervently and daily contemplate on the wisdom, love, grace, goodness, holiness, and righteousness of God as revealing and manifesting themselves in Him? Do we sufficiently, sufficiently consider that the immediate vision of this glory in heaven will be our everlasting blessedness? Does the imperfect view which we have of it here increase our desires? And after the perfect sight of it, above. Do you hear what he's saying here? Do you, do, do you, do you meditate on Christ? Do you do the things that we're talking about here? Do, do, you, do you let your, and, intelli and, and just with, with absolute intentionality, do you fill your mind with Christ? Now, we, we know the, the distractions that, that the world has to offer, and I'm not even necessarily talking about sin. We, we know the things that, that are competing for our attention, even good things. But by intentionally filling our minds with Christ and, and basking in His glory, the more you do that, the more you want to do that. 
Because the, the more glorious Christ becomes before your mind's eye, the more, the, the more you want his glory. And the less you'll be satisfied with anything else. So, so then we have seen the glory of Christ. Now let's consider the saints' witness from verses 30 to 33. The saints' witness. So it turns out Peter and James and John were not alone with Jesus on the mountain. They witnessed another witness to Christ's glory. Two preeminent Old Testament saints. Behold, or, or look, two men were talking with Jesus. Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah come together to venerate Jesus. Now, there are several reasons why these particular men out of all the Old Testament saints were present. First of all, and the one that probably comes to most people's minds, is that Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets. So this is a testimony of who Jesus is. He is the one to whom the law and the prophets testify. So these two men are, in that sense, witnesses to Christ. And the presence of these men is also no doubt significant because of their unique deaths. Remember that Moses died on Mount Nebo after the Lord had showed him the promised land and that the Lord himself buried Moses, Deuteronomy 34, 1-8. And remember that Elijah was taken up to heaven by a whirlwind, 2 Kings 2, 1-12. And so in this sense, they, they represent two forms of, of death, so to speak. Moses represents those who are already dead and who will be raised at the Lord's coming, 1 Thessalonians 4.16. Whereas Elijah represents those who are alive at the time of Christ's return and are caught up to meet him in the air, 1 Thessalonians 4.17. And so both of these men, whether they, whether they died in this life or whether they were translated to go to be with, with Jesus, both men are clearly alive. And there's a comfort, isn't it? There's a comfort to those who have lost loved ones. That they are alive and with Christ. And in this context, it would have especially been a comfort for the disciples of Christ who would face suffering and possibly even death because of their witness for Christ. Now Moses had left this life 2,000 years earlier. Elijah around 900 years earlier. But again, both of these men are very much alive. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Luke 20, 38. They had departed. Those who are departed in Christ are with Christ in paradise. It's also important to notice that Moses and Elijah appeared in glory. They appear in glory as partakers of Christ's glory. But as important as those two men are, they are subordinate to Jesus Christ. Remember in Exodus 34, when Moses came down the mountain, having received the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, his face shone because he had been talking with God. He had been in the presence of the Lord, and the people were afraid, so Moses had to put a veil on his face in order to, to hide the light. 
So Moses had a suntan, an S-O-N tan. Well, like the moon reflects the light of the sun, Moses reflected the Lord's glory. But the radiance of the sun comes from the sun itself. And so does the radiance of the Son of God. He is the source of that radiance. At that moment of the, in the Mount of Transfiguration, this wasn't something new that took place. This was something that had been there all along, but had been veiled previously from their eyes. They were basking in the glow of the radiance of the glory of Christ. Brothers and sisters, you too are a partaker of Christ's glory. And you reflect Christ's glory when you dwell on and in his glorious presence. Please turn with me in your Bible for a moment to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, and in, in verses 1 to 4, we're told that if you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's where Christ is at this very moment. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are of, on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so we're told specifically here by the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3 to set your minds on these things. And chief among these things is to set your minds on the glory of Christ in the hope that he will return in his glory and that you also will appear with him in glory. Now, this here is actually is presented here is, is in the perfect tense. This is, says th that you are seated. You have been raised with Christ, already raised with Christ, even though it's, it, we're in the already but the not yet. This is, this is something that, that we anticipate from an eternal perspective. This is the here and now. So focus on this great and glorious blessing and on this great and glorious promise. And so Paul goes on to say in verse 5, Therefore, because of what, he, what I've just said, put off sin. Right? Put to death what is earthly in you. And then he has this list here. So, so put off sexual immorality and covetousness and anger and so on. And then in verse 12, put on righteousness. And again, it lives a, 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 a mirror list. Put on, instead of the sin you put off, put on compassion and kindness and, humili and humility and so on. And so what, what Paul is saying here is that a glimpse of the glory of Christ will help you to put off sin and put on righteousness. It will help you to, to grow in, in overcoming sin and it will help you to grow in righteousness. So set your mind on Christ and his glory. Make it your life's passion to focus on the glory of Christ. And when you do that, you will grow in your reflection of that glory to a watching world. People will see the glory of Christ in you. Well, there's another point, an important thing to note here about the appearance of Moses and Elijah. And I believe that this is important in the, the wider context of the passage. We've already touched on the fact that Elijah was here as a prophet. Well, so was Moses. 
While Elijah represents the end times prophet spoken of in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, remember the, the angel who announced the birth of John the Baptist to Zechariah spoke of this in Luke 1.17. And Matthew and Mark pick up on this as they record the ensuing discussion between Jesus and Peter and John and James, where Jesus says clearly that John the Baptist is the Elijah who was to come. This is a clear fulfillment of the promise that first God would send the Elijah. It's like a, a double fulfillment. But Moses had an important role as a prophet as well. Moses says in Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. And it is to him that you will listen. It is to him that you will listen. Keep that statement in mind. We're going to come back to that a little bit later. There's one final thing to note about the presence of Moses and Elijah. And here in light of the immediate context. Consider the topic of their discussion. They spoke of Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. They spoke of Jesus' departure. And the, the presence of Moses here points to the Exodus. Moses was the, the key figure in the Exodus of Israel out of Egypt into the Promised Land. In fact, the word that is translated here, departure, is actually Exodus. This doesn't just refer to Christ's, uh, Christ's death, but his, his journey from, from humiliation to exaltation, his, his death and his resurrection and his ascension, all of which will take place at Jerusalem in the very near future. But Elijah, considered in this light, points to the future future. So Christ's departure or his exodus will be temporary. He will return just as he had promised in verse 26. That he will come in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So again, several reasons why these men in particular are here with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Why Moses and Elijah were there. But now we're brought back to the other three witnesses who were there on the mountain. Peter and John and James. We're told that they were heavy with sleep. Now this detail is only in Luke. Personally, I can't imagine falling asleep in the, the middle of, of such an event, but the verb here is in the passive voice. It, it suggests that it was involuntary that, that involuntary, that sleep somehow came over them. Now remember, these same disciples will also be found sleeping at a, in the time of another crucial event, of the Lord's agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this points to their human weakness. As J.C. Ryle notes of, the, of this verse, flesh and blood does indeed need to be changed before it can enter heaven. But then as Moses and Elijah were departing, impetuous Peter again shows his weakness as he blurts out, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Luke editorializes this, saying that Peter did not know what he said. The, the experience was overwhelming. He just blurted out the, the first thing that came to mind. I don't know if you can relate to that. When you've, you've been in a conversation and something awkward and, and foolish pops out of your mouth and you, you wish you could unsay it. Well, maybe it's just me. 
But what was Peter thinking here? He wanted to make three tents or tabernacles, one for Jesus and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, it's been suggested that this is a, a, a reference to the Feast of Tabernacles, a celebration of, of God's provision during the Exodus. Well, I'm not sure about that, but, but there does seem to be at least two other thoughts going on in Peter's mind here. One is that Peter wanted this moment to last. He likely thought that the kingdom of heaven had actually arrived. Remember, Jesus had just said in verse 27 that some of the disciples would not die until they saw the kingdom of God. And so in this, this glorious appearance of, of Jesus and, and Moses and Elijah appearing there with him in glory, he thinks, wow, the kingdom of heaven is actually here. But there's another error that Peter makes. This is a major error that, that, when he, makes in this, that he makes in this statement. He seems to be equating Jesus with Moses and Elijah, putting them all on the same level. Well, Peter is about to be corrected in no uncertain terms. So let's look finally at verses 34 to 36, the Father's testimony. As Peter is speaking, a cloud comes down and overshadows them. In the Old Testament, a cloud is often associated with the presence of God. For example, in Exodus 19, as the people gathered at the base of Mount Sinai, a thick cloud came and descended on the mountain. And then in Exodus 24, as Moses went up the mountain, a, a cloud covered the mountain. And similarly, in, in Exodus 40, upon the completion of the tabernacle, which would serve as sort of a, a mobile temple as they journeyed through the wilderness, God's Shekinah glory came down and covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord, we're told, filled the tabernacle. Well, now the cloud overshadows Peter and John and James. It, it envelops them. Peter was understandably overwhelmed before. Well, he and the others are understandably afraid now. But it's about to get a whole lot scarier. Verse 35, a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. God actually spoke directly to Peter and John and James, revealing who Jesus is. This is truly the, the summit of the mountain. This is the ultimate answer of who Jesus is. And the answer comes from God himself. Remember that in Matthew's parallel account of Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, we were told that, that Peter did not figure out for himself that Jesus is the Christ. But the answer had been revealed to him by God. And Luke told us there in verse 18 that, that Jesus had just been praying and that this was very likely, it was actually very likely praying for this very revelation to Peter. And I wonder if Jesus was praying as, as he went up the Mount of Transfiguration, if he was praying again for Peter and John and James in light of this revelation. 
But as amazing as Peter's testimony was that Jesus is the Christ, it isn't the whole story. Jesus is indeed the Christ, but he is far more. God had revealed to Peter who Jesus is, and Peter testified to um, to it, and now God testifies to who Jesus is directly as he speaks to Peter and John and James in an audible voice. There have been very few times in the history of the world that God has spoken with an audible voice. But the last time this happened was prior to the Mount of Transfiguration at Jesus' baptism, when God spoke from heaven to Jesus at his, at his baptism, we said, You are my, my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Luke 3 22. But God's statement here removes another veil to the glory of Christ and adds another layer to the wonder of his person. Luke records three parts of God's testimony This is my Son. Now, God had said this to Jesus at his baptism, and now he says it directly to Peter, John, and James. Consider Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. Or Psalm 2, 7. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Friends, Jesus is God the Son. He shares in the divine nature. Now, Peter and John and James had just gotten a glimpse of this, but, of this, but this is reality. This is the eternal reality that the same God who testified to who Jesus is is the same God who Jesus is. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is God of God. He is God the Son. God also says, my chosen one. This emphasizes another aspect of Jesus' person. It is tied to his role as the Messiah. It echoes Isaiah 42, 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. Matthew here includes the phrase, with whom I am well pleased. We're reflecting on this further. God the Son is the one who will be chosen to fulfill the covenant of redemption, coming to live and to die for his people and to be raised on the third day and ascended to be with God forever and ever. Well, the third element that, that God testifies to Jesus here is the command, listen to him. Listen to him. Now, this reveals that Jesus is indeed the greater Moses from Deuteronomy 18.15 that I mentioned earlier. To him you must listen. Jesus is not on the same level as Moses. He is immeasurably greater than Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah testified to the truth. Jesus is the truth. Now, if you have a a red-letter Bible... Please do not elevate the words that are in red above the other words of Scripture. Because all the words of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is the Word of God. It is all the Word of Christ. It's all His Word. Peter and John and James were, were commanded to listen to Him, and so are you. You are commanded to listen to Christ, to listen to all the words of Christ. Are you 
listening to his word, to all of his word. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice. When you put these two titles of Jesus together, Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus is the Son of God, you are seeing even more of his glory revealed. He's about to go to Jerusalem to die for sinners. And so God's testimony, he reveals the divine seal of approval on Jesus for what he is about to do. Then in verse 36, when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. It was just Jesus with Peter and John and James who were left. And Matthew adds that when they heard this, they fell on their faces in fear. Now again, I think it's very understandable to fall on your face in fear at the sound of the voice of God. Fear is a natural response to revelation, and especially a revelation of this magnitude from this source. But Jesus came, Matthew tells us, Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. You do not need to stay paralyzed in fear because of Jesus. He bids you to rise and have no fear. And Luke concludes, And they had kept silent and told no one in those days anything what they had seen. No one else is to hear what they have heard or see what they have seen yet. They told no one. This is another example of the messianic secret that we talked about before, that that Jesus does not want people to misunderstand his mission. Word of the transfiguration, if it had gotten out prematurely, it would have fed messianic fervor in the people. And, And Jesus must first be humbled before he's exalted. Before he is exalted and glorified, he finally must go to the cross. Matthew and Mark explained that they were to say nothing until Jesus had risen from the dead. And they obeyed and they they wondered what this rising from the dead might mean. Even with with all they had seen and, and all they had heard, they would only come to truly understand after the resurrection. So in this, in this passage that, that we've looked at, there's been a, a major focus on, on what is seen and on what is heard. What they saw, they saw Jesus' appearance. They saw it altered and his clothes dazzling white. And we, we saw, behold, or look, there are Moses and Elijah appearing in glory. The apostles saw Jesus' glory. And then Luke shifts to hearing, they heard the voice of God out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. So what is seen and what is heard is revelation from God. But we haven't seen what they saw. We weren't eyewitnesses with them on the mountain. We didn't see these things with our own eyes. Likewise, we didn't hear what they heard. We have not heard, none of us have heard the audible voice of God. Remember Eric Weyenmayer, who had to climb Mount Everest 
with the help of his friends who guided him towards the summit. And we have been climbing the mountain, so to speak, of Luke's gospel account, answering the question of who Jesus is. We have been guided to the summit by our friends, Luke and Peter and James and John, who themselves were guided by the Holy Spirit and also with others, including John Owen. Friends, for Eric Weyenmayer, seeing was not believing. He was asked how he chose people to, to, to be the ones who would go with him and, and help him. And, and he said, you know, in our culture, people say that, that seeing is believing. But, but he said, I want to look for people who have an unrealistic optimism about life. He says, I hear people say seeing is believing, but I want people who believe the opposite. I want people who say believing is seeing. He said, you've got to believe first in what you're doing and be sure you have a reason to believe it. Now, I don't know if Eric Weyenmayer has faith in Jesus Christ, but what he said here is very profound. And what he says here has a very real application for you and me. For us, believing is seeing. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there with Peter and John and James and Moses and Elijah and Jesus and the presence of God in the cloud on that mountain? Wouldn't you have loved to be there to, to see for yourself and to, to hear for yourself what was taking place? to see Jesus in his glory and to hear the voice of God testify to the fact that Jesus is God's son. But brothers and sisters, you and I have an even better revelation. You and I have a better revelation than if you and I were there on the mountain with those men. Please turn with you in your Bible to, as we draw to a close, to Second uh, Peter chapter 1. Let me just read Second Peter 1, verses 18 to 21. This is Peter's testimony of this account. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now hear this. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing that first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever fulfilled, ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. These men saw with their own eyes the glory of Christ. These men heard with their own ears the voice of God declaring who Jesus is. And Peter is saying here that you have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. You have the Holy Bible, which testifies all of it, which testifies to the glory of Christ. Yes, it was a, an, an amazing privilege for these men to be there and to, to see and to hear, but, but we have the Word of God. 
we have in many respects an even greater privilege than they had. You have the word of God that testifies to the glory of Christ. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, as you read of Christ in his word, the glory of Christ is revealed to you. And you grow in worship and adoration and wonder at Christ and his glory. Brothers and sisters, are you filling your mind, and your heart with the word of God so that you will see the glory of Christ revealed. In anticipation of that day when we will all see him face to face. And for those who are his who will enter into worship of the glorified Christ in our glorified bodies. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we marvel at your glory and we praise you that you have given us your holy word that points to your glory, that reveals your glory to us through the power of your spirit. We pray that you would help us all of us, to behold your glory and, Lord, to meditate, to focus, and to fill our minds with your glory. That we be transformed into the image of Christ for our good, for the building of your church, and for the glory of your name.